Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got two interviews today. The first looks at the struggles of those in the sex and sex tech industries to get access to capital and to create products and services that respect users and creators, and the second considers the state of privacy and its relationship to power. OnlyFans, a UK-based site that built a billion-dollar business enabling creators to post and get paid for sexually explicit material, announced last week that as of October 1st, it would no longer permit anything much more salacious than nudity. This came as a surprise to its legion of creators and its many paying fans. But the reason was straightforward. Financial firms simply not support businesses that deal in sex and pornography. Now, OnlyFans has come out and reversed its decision. But when I read about OnlyFans' predicament, I immediately thought about another venture that encountered many of the same issues when it got up and running a decade ago, called Make Love Not Porn. Founded by Cindy Gallup, Make Love Not Porn bills itself as the world's first user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. I caught up with Cindy to hear more about her experience with these issues, get perspective on the OnlyFans announcement, and talk about what it says about a fundamental predicament for the adult content and services industry. I will note there are one or two phrases that might catch a child by surprise, if you happen to be listening in your car or home, that go along with the subject matter. Here's Cindy. So I'm Cindy Gallup. I'm the founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. Until I raise the kind of funding for Make Love Not Porn that I really want to, I support myself alongside that, working as a public speaker and a consultant. And as you may recall, Justin, I characterize my approach to business speaking and consultancy as I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. Absolutely. And I met you a decade ago, uh, which is not, uh, I think, right around the time that you launched Make Love Not Porn. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, um, it would have been. Um, yeah, exactly. I remember early on you telling me about the troubles that you were having getting going in particular because of uh, issues in getting the thing financed uh, and getting banking and, and dealing with those sorts of things. Maybe just tell for my listeners, the quick history of Make Love Not Porn, what you're trying to do and and how you got it off the ground. Sure. Um, Essentially, um, Make Love Not Porn is an accident in the sense that I never consciously intentionally set out to do anything I very bizarrely find myself doing now. It came about um, through my direct personal experience dating younger men. The men I date tend to be in their 20s. And realizing 13 or 14 years ago, through dating younger men, that I was encountering what happens when two things converge. And I stress the dual convergence, Justin, because most people think it's only one thing. I realized I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. When those two things converge, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. And so I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes in bed. I went, whoa, I know where that's coming from. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that because 13, 14 years ago, nobody was talking about this. Nobody was writing about it. And as a naturally action-oriented person, I went, I want to do something about this. 
So 12 years ago, I put up on No Money a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that in its original version was just words. The construct was porn world versus real world. Here's what happens in the porn world. Here's what really happens in the real world. I launched at TED in 2009, became the only TED speaker to say the words come on my face on the TED stage, six times in succession. The talk went viral as a result, and it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny clunky website I'd never anticipated, and I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so that was what led me to turn Make Love Not Porn into something much more far-reaching, helpful, and effective, which is the world's first and only user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. So we are pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. If porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, Make Love Not Porn is the real-world documentary. We are what Facebook would be if Facebook allowed you to socially, sexually self-express, which it obviously doesn't. So we're socializing sex, normalizing sex in the real world to make it easier for everyone to talk about, to promote consent, communication, good sexual values, and good sexual behavior. We call ourselves the social sex revolution. The revolutionary part is not the sex, it's the social. And to your question, Justin, you know, the one thing I did not realize when I embarked on this venture 12 years ago was that I and my tiny team would fight an enormous battle every single day to build this. Essentially because every piece of business infrastructure, any other tech startup gets to take for granted, we can't, the small print always says no adult content. And this is all pervasive across every area of the business in ways that people outside the sphere don't realize. So as you mentioned, you know, I can't get funded. I can't get banked. It took me four years to find one bank here in America that would allow us to open a business bank account to make love, not porn. Far and away, our biggest operational challenge is payments. PayPal won't work with us. Stripe can't. Mainstream credit card processors won't. But it goes way beyond that. Every tech service I need to use to operate my video stream platform, be it hosting, encoding, encrypting, the terms of service always say no adult content. In every single case, I have to go to the people at the top of the company, explain what I'm doing, beg to be allowed to use their service. Sometimes they let me, sometimes I don't. It's a very labor-intensive process. We had to build our entire video sharing platform from scratch as proprietary technology because existing streaming services will not stream adult content. I'm so jealous of friends who built video startups on top of Vimeo. Quick, easy, simple, I can't do that. Even something as simple as sending out membership emails. MailChimp will not work with adult content. Rejected by six or seven email partners till we found SendGrid who would. Um, and to give you some idea of the ridiculous extremes all of this goes to, a couple of years ago, I needed a contract user experience designer. I put a perfectly standard job description up on Upwork. 20 minutes later, Upwork took it down and told us, because we are Make Love Not Porn, we are not allowed to advertise jobs on Upwork. That's how ridiculous all of this is. This is a site that promotes body positivity, a healthy approach to relationships and, and sex and to, to sharing uh, ideas related to sex, uh, in addition to actually depicting sex, which is something that a lot of people obviously have an interest in. Of course, this kind of came into the news. These problems came into the news a little bit 
in the last week or so when this site called uh, OnlyFans had some similar problems. And I immediately thought of you. I figured you were probably on some level on the sidelines watching this situation unfold and might have something to say about it. What, what do you make of the situation uh, with OnlyFans, which I don't necessarily regard as a competitor, but um, no, um, no, it absolutely isn't. You're right. Um, but, but certainly in a similar space. Yeah. Um, so, so actually, let me respond to your question in two parts, if that's okay. I want to speak to the make love not porn perspective on it, and, and, and I'll speak to OnlyFans, because you're quite right, Justin. Here's the enormous irony of my situation, because make love not porn is a venture and a platform unlike any other. So, first of all, our mission is to end rape culture. And we do that by doing something incredibly simple that nevertheless, nobody else is doing. We end rape culture by showing you how wonderful, great consensual communicative sex is in the real world. Our social sex videos role model, good sexual values and behavior. And we make all of that aspirational versus what you see in porn and popular culture. Okay, that's the first point. You know, um, we, we are out to end rape culture and we can't get the infrastructure and, and the financial support we need. The second thing is that Make Love Not Porn is a no-risk venture in what is deemed a high-risk category. By the way, given the work you do, I actually want to contextualize Make Love Not Porn within the broader tech landscape because the young white male founders of the giant tech platforms that dominate our lives today are not the primary targets online and offline of harassment, abuse, sexual assault, racism, rape, revenge porn. Therefore, they did not and they do not proactively design for the prevention of any of those things on their platforms. And we see the results around us every single day. Those of us who are most at risk every single day, women, black people, people of color, LGBTQ, the disabled, we design safe spaces and safe experiences. I and my tiny team spent literally years concepting and designing Make Love Not Porn before we ever built it because we knew to invite people to do something they've never done before, socially share their real world sex, we had to think through every possible ramification to create a completely safe and trustworthy space. And as a result, not only does Make Love Not Porn operate unlike anybody else in the adult sphere, we operate unlike anybody else on the internet, period. And what I mean by that is I designed Make Love Not Porn around what everybody else should have, nobody else did, human curation. There is no self-publishing of anything on Make Love Not Porn. Our curators watch every single real world sex video submitted from beginning to end before we approve or reject it and we publish it. Nobody else does that. We review every single post on every single member profile, um, photos, text illustration, before we approve it and publish it. And by the way, you know, our member social posts can be as safe work or not safe work as you like, but we approve every single one. We review every single comment on every single video before we approve it and publish it. And that is why Make Love Not Porn is the safest place on the internet because we can vouch for every single piece of content on our platform in a way that nobody else can. Now, bear in mind everything else I've just said, Justin, because we are tiny, we're bootstrapping, we have no money, and we've been human curating everything for nine years. 
if Make Love Not Porn can do it, OnlyFans, with that revenue, Facebook, Instagram, boy oh boy, they could do it as well. You know, it, it's like diversity and inclusion. If you really want to do it, you can. If you really want to human curate, you can. And, and the third reason why Make Love Not Porn is a no-risk venture is because the thing that the financial world is most concerned about when it comes to adult content is chargebacks. And I'll just explain for the benefit of our listeners that chargebacks are what happens when the wife goes to the husband, oh, darling, what's this funny charge on our credit card? And the husband goes, whoa, whoa, no idea what that is. That's fraud, that is. We're not paying it. Now, Make Love Not Porn has a virtually zero chargeback record because um, we're social sex. Couples watch our videos together. Nobody's hiding anything from anybody. So um, those three things mean it's outrageous that we are not welcomed by credit card processors, PayPal, Stripe, everywhere. Now, my perspective on what's happened with OnlyFans is, first of all, that is a really sad indictment of what I've been fighting for 12 years because nothing's changed on the infrastructure, fintech, payments front. You know, the very fact that a venture like OnlyFans can fall victim to that is extraordinary. But the second thing is that both OnlyFans and MasterCard and Visa and Stripe and PayPal, they are missing out on a huge opportunity. Um, so this isn't OnlyFans agenda. Um, I very much wish it was, but turbocharged by the pandemic, OnlyFans spectacularly mainstreamed sexual content as entertainment and the ability to you know, earn a living generating sexual content as entertainment, whoever you were. Because obviously... Um, their growth was propelled in the first instance by professional sex workers. But with the pandemic financially impacting everybody, you know, that opened up the opportunity for many other people to decide to do something on OnlyFans, you know, to, in some form of, you know, um, sexual related content that enabled them to earn money. And honestly, I would have loved OnlyFans to have wanted to mainstream all of this on behalf of all of us, because they are the best bridge we've ever had to mainstream acceptance. Now, that isn't their agenda, because unfortunately, um, again, as we've seen, they are absolutely bowing to the old world order, demand that, you know, if you want to grow, um, you do not do it with, with adult content. And I find it astonishing that with those extraordinary financials that, that they have had to, you know, bend the knee, they and everybody else are just missing out on this as an enormous opportunity. Because if you look, as I said, at what we do at Make Love Not Porn in our tiny bootstrapping impoverished way, it is absolutely possible to design for completely safe, legal, consensual adult entertainment and adult content. And um, we need people like OnlyFans to like take up that mission again on all of our behalf and show that you make so much more money when you embrace it. Because, you know, the point is just, and, and, and I've been saying this for 12 years, ever since I realized all the barriers I faced and set out to educate everybody and also to get people to see that the answer to everything that worries people about porn and sex is not to shut down, censor, clamp down, block, repress. It is instead to open up. 
open up the dialogue around all of this. And actually that, that is the one good thing about what's happening with OnlyFans. It is all of this has been broken wide open and talked about and really analyzed and observed very differently from 12 years ago. But the answer is to open up to supporting and welcoming and funding entrepreneurs like me and the OnlyFans team want to disrupt all of this for the, for the better and open up to allowing us to do business the same way everybody else does. Because when you do that, you completely transform the landscape of what is deemed adult. I like to repurpose in this context, Wayne LaPierre of the NRA's infamous gun control quote, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a business is a good guy with a better business. And doing what I've just talked about, opening up instead of censoring and blocking, leads to, quite frankly, so much more in terms of money, way bigger financial returns. You know, we are talking about the universal human experience. You know, we are talking about, you know, something that everybody, you know, wants and enjoys and is willing to pay for um, in, a, in a way that you can say about very few other things. And so that is the huge opportunity that only fans and the payments processes and the fintech world are missing out on. What do you make of the broader kind of content moderation arguments that go on between, you know, we perpetually now spending our time talking about deplatforming and uh, censorship and a section 230 and all of these related things from your vantage running a site that seems to do content moderation in such a intense and focused way. What do you make of the kind of broader conversation around this issue and how to make platforms safe? Again, with Make Love Not Porn, you are looking at what happens when the female lens is brought to bear on building technology. And there are a couple of very important principles about why we operate the way we do, which are why the white male bro founded platforms have such a huge problem, okay? So um, the first principle, Justin, is that we designed Make Love Not Porn around human curation because Make Love Not Porn is designed around enormous respect for our community, respect for our wonderful members, and especially respect for our contributors whom we call our Make Love Not Porn stars. Because we consider it a privilege that these people have been willing to share this most intimate part of their lives with us. So in that context, we take human curation to extraordinary levels I mean, we, we really curate it in a way that nobody else does, but we take curation to unheard of levels. I mentioned to you earlier that we review every comment on every video before we approve or reject and publish them. We build a personal relationship with every one of our Make Love Not Porn stars. And one of the things that we do when we on, on board a new Make Love Not Porn star is we ask them what comments they do and don't want to see on their videos. And we then curate accordingly. And the reason for that, I'll give a couple of instances. You know, um, our members are utterly respectful and very appreciative, but in their comments, they may use language that that Make Love Not Porn so would rather not see, in which case they just have to tell us and we will not publish those comments. Or, you know, Make Love Not Porn is all inclusive and diverse. We have many male, female, trans, non-binary Make Love Not Porn stars. And with our trans non-binary contributors, while we, we have pronouns, so you absolutely see how people self-identify, they may present as a different gender. And, you know, enthusiastic and appreciative members may be triggering in comments that reference that gender. 
And so they can tell us again what they do and don't want to see in the comments, and we will curate accordingly. Nobody else even goes remotely near anything like that. And that is because I go back to the key point, Justin, we designed around respect for our community. Most platforms out there do not respect their community. They see their community as numbers and they see their community as dollar signs. And quite honestly, OnlyFans is a case in point because I would have loved to see OnlyFans respect sex workers and design for sex workers, designed to keep them safe, protected, you know, make their lives easier, not be 24-7 content farms, you know, et cetera. So, so that's principle num number one, okay? I watch what's happening with OnlyFans and I go, you know, respect your community and design around that and you create extraordinary experiences that also keep people safe. The second thing is, the reason Make Love Not Porn is the safest place on the internet is because our approach to our content starts before you ever come anywhere near the site. And what I mean by that is when you put out there what kind of content you designed your platform for, that is the only kind of content you get. I designed Make Love Not Porn to celebrate the funny, messy, wonderful, comical, fabulous ways we all have sex in the real world. And we make it crystal clear what we mean when we say we are a social sex, real world sex video sharing platform. We make it crystal clear, not only in our FAQs on, on the platform, but across all our social channels, in every media interview, in every blog post. And so we only get the kind of content submitted that we want to receive. Other platforms could absolutely learn from that principle as well, because you can't be Facebook and go, we just want to connect the world. Everybody come on in and expect that you will then not have to deal with a ton of shit. You know, I designed to make love not porn around a ton of my own beliefs and philosophies, one of which is that everything in life starts with you and your values. And we know exactly what our values are at make love not porn and we designed for them. You know, I believe the business model of the future is shared values plus shared action equals shared profit financial profit and social profit. Um, by the way, that's what my startup, If We Around the World, is all about. And I designed Make Love Not Porn around that same business model. And so, you know, um, you cannot stand for nothing and then squawk about the fact you have a complete and total shit show going on your platform. Decide what you are for. Decide what you want on your platform and then design for that and project that outwards and make it very clear that that is what you welcome and you do not want the kind of content that you don't want on your platform. Does that make sense? It does. Over the years, have you had much interaction or any interaction with regulators or lawmakers, uh, any that have uh, been curious about your predicament or interested in, in what it is that you're doing? I haven't. I mean, first of all, you know, I should just say that make love porn is more legal than legal. You know, I spent a huge amount of my seed funding on, on, on lawyers, you know, setting us up at the start. And, and by the way, that is the enormous irony of all of the protestations around adult content. We can't operate online unless we are fully legal. But it's a great question, Justin, because I haven't, but I want to. And what I mean by that is I've been saying for years to open up the tech and business world's minds the three huge disruption opportunities in tech today are sex, cannabis, and the blockchain. And ironically, investors are flooding into the other two more than they are the first, which means that VCs and startups in cannabis and 
blockchain and crypto can afford to fund lobbyists, regulation change, public education initiatives, foundations. We need all of that in sex tech because we need a new legal definition of adult content. Because at the moment, compliance is knee jerk. Okay, that little phrase is blanket coverage for everything. And as you and our listeners have just heard, Make Love Not Porn is the safest place on the internet. And we still are blocked from so many things because we are adult content. We need to update the legislation. We need to update the understanding. We need to educate around the fact that there are a ton, like me, of utterly ethical, legal, transparent sex tech ventures where there is no risk in working with us whatsoever. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you you wanted to kind of get across today about either what we've heard around OnlyFans in the last few days or more generally about the general context around content moderation? Obviously, on the content moderation front, I go back to my point. If Make Love Not Porn, tiny bootstrapping with no money, has for nine years been able to review with human eyes every single video, every single post and every single comment, so can everybody else, okay? Everybody else should be looking at our model and learning from it. But the other thing I, I would say is we need everybody off the back of, the, of what is happening with OnlyFans to rally around and support all of us working in sex tech, in sex tech adventures, because, you know, and I've been saying this for years about Make Love Not Porn justly, but it applies to all of us. Make Love Not Porn operates in the single biggest market of them all. Not sex, not porn, the market of human happiness. I started Make Love Not Porn because of the thousands of emails that I received after my TED talk from every single country in the world, from young and old, male and female, straight and gay, who poured their hearts out to me told me things about their sex lives and their porn watching habits they'd never told anybody else before, simply because as one man wrote to me, he said, he wrote a really long email. He said, I can't believe that at the age of 38, I am pouring all of this out to a woman I've never met because she is the only person I've ever seen speak honestly about all of this. I've spent 12 years looking at, you know, my email inbox, the comments in our videos, the conversations I have, I have seen the enormous human shame, misery, and unhappiness caused by the guilt and embarrassment that we imbue um, everything to do with sex with. And that is why it is so important that this moment is seized. And this opportunity with OnlyFans, which, as I said, has mainstreamed the enjoyment of sexual content more than any other venture, this is why I want to see everybody rally round and go, it's time to change all of this. Well, I will let you know if uh, the transcription service that I send this interview to uh, rejects it for some reason. <laughs> I hope that won't be the case, but uh, yeah. no. But I would hope that um, uh, in future we do see uh, the, the type of change that that you refer to. Um, strikes me that the internet might be a safer place, and and while. Um, I suppose many people listening to this would say, well, you know, YouTube could never review every single video uploaded. Oh, yes, they could if they really wanted to. And just so you know, Justin, uh, because I'm about to set out to raise a serious round of funding for Make Love Not Porn to scale to be the Facebook of social sex. That's what I want us to be, a billion dollar venture. Human curation is built into our business plan as eminently scalable. 
And the analogy I draw, because this is the way to think about it is, you know, human curation, scalable human curation is our version of software as a service enterprise sales force. Okay, those enterprise software unicorns, okay, have built into their business plans tons and tons and tons of salespeople because that's what you need to sell that kind of software. This is the same thing. If YouTube wanted to review every single um, a video uploaded to the platform, they could. And by the way, the moment, to my point earlier, the moment you announce you're doing that, that flood of content reduces immediately to the kind of content you want on your platform. Because when the child abusers and the racists and the Nazis know that you are now human curating for the content you want, they stop submitting it. You definitely create a kind of picture of an internet that I hope we can get to. You mentioned blockchain. Maybe I'll just ask you about that quickly. Mm-hmm. Does blockchain figure into or uh, you know, crypto figure generally into your, your business model plans? Does that seem like an opportunity to you or is it still too early? Do you know, ironically, it's still too early. And it's ironic mm-hmm. because, Justin, you know, when I ran up against all of these financial barriers, I absolutely been monitoring the future of fintech every day since I started Make Love Not Porn. So I was talking to the Bitcoin, the crypto community way back when. And by the way, I'm bloody kicking myself and I've bought Bitcoin at the time, obviously, you know. But here's the issue. And in fact, I said this to the audience at Crypto Springs in 2019, which is a wonderful, diverse, female-founded um, crypto um, event, um, where I spoke on a panel about these challenges. And I said to the crypto community, at Make Love and Paul, we need you to get a whole lot better at telling your story, to mainstream it. Because, because that's the issue. Make Love and Paul is a mass market mainstream brand. And crypto at the moment does not have the widespread mainstream mass market understanding and comfort level with giving it mainstream adoption in a way that means that we could then leverage the hell out of it. That's my challenge to the crypto community. I mean, we need you to do what OnlyFans did, actually, massively accelerate mainstreaming um, for mainstream use cases um, in a way that, you know, people like me will absolutely welcome because it'll be a, it'll be a much easier sell to our members in our community. Cindy Galp, I hope I don't wait 10 years to talk to you again. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. It's been a pleasure. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Next up, we turn to a discussion about a recently published book, Privacy is Power, Why and How You Should Take Back Control of Your Data by Carissa Velas, Associate Professor and Faculty of Philosophy at the Institute for Ethics and AI and a Tutorial Fellow at Hertford College at the University of Oxford. Carissa works on digital ethics with an emphasis on privacy and AI ethics. I caught up with Carissa about the book and how it relates to some current issues in the world, from the pandemic to climate change. Here's Carissa. My name is Carissa Velis, and I'm an associate professor at the Institute for Ethics in AI at the University of Oxford. Before we get started talking about your book in the issue of privacy more generally, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to look at these issues? I'm a philosopher and 
I was writing my dissertation on a different topic in ethics. And I started researching the history of my family as a kind of side thing. I learned a lot about them that they hadn't told us. So they were refugees from the Spanish Civil War and they went to live to Mexico. And there was a lot about what they did before going to Mexico and who they were that uh, was completely unknown to us. So I went to the archives, I, I dug out this information and it made me wonder whether I had a right to know these things and whether I had a right maybe to write about them because I found them very interesting. And that summer, Edward Snowden came up with his revelations that we were being surveilled at a mass scale. And being a philosopher, I looked to philosophy to see what was there about privacy. And I realized there was a huge gap in the literature. There was some work on privacy, but there was very little. And the work that there was was quite outdated. So I decided to change the topic of my dissertation. And I ended up writing about the ethics and politics of privacy. Tell me about this book. Give the, the reader a sense of how it came together. You've just published it in, in the fall of 2020. Yes, originally I had the idea of publishing an academic book, but the more I researched privacy, the more I realized this is a very important topic. We're at a crucial state, um, a crucial moment in history. There is a need for people to be better informed about this, and there are very good reasons for why we're not better informed. There, there are a lot of interests, primarily from companies, but also from governments, that we don't know too much about how much we're being surveilled. And I thought that this was too an important topic and to an important moment to just write an academic book. So I decided to write the book that I wish I had been able to read when I got worried about this issue. On some level, I think of the, the first three chapters as, as kind of context. On some level, you spend chapter one kind of walking through the day in the life of someone and talking about how privacy and collection of data might impact them and the different parts of the day. You get into, I think, in chapter two, really, you know, how the how the data economy developed and two or three key things that drive that. Can you, for the listener, just kind of quickly sketch out what those three key drivers are? Sure. I wanted to write a book that was totally accessible for somebody who hasn't thought about privacy at all, but also interesting for experts and philosophical. So I hypothesized that the three key elements that drove the data economy was first, Google realizing that they could make a lot of money out of personal data. They were a startup and they were very successful in the sense that they had a fantastic search engine and a lot of people wanted to use it, but they didn't have a way to fund themselves. And they were keenly aware that getting into ads could compromise their loyalty towards users, but they couldn't figure out a different way. And they realized that they could target ads in, in an incredibly personalized way and have a competitive advantage. And that made them soar incredibly high after, after they decided to use data that way. And the Federal Trade Commission realized that this was a danger. And they had in, in 2001, if I remember correctly, or 2000, I, I forget exactly uh, which month, they published a report recommending to Congress that they should regulate the data economy. And many of the suggestions they make were along the lines of the GDPR. So the second element that was really important for the data economy to take off was 9-11, because a few months after the, the Federal Trade Commission publishes this report, 9-11 happens. And suddenly the government realizes that they can make a copy of all that data, literally make a copy and try to use it to prevent terrorism. 
I think this was an intuitive approach. I think it was well-intentioned. It just so happens that big data is not the right kind of analytics to prevent terrorism. Big data is fantastic at knowing what you will buy tomorrow because billions of people buy things every single day. So we have troves and troves of data. But terrorism is always going to be a rare event. And that makes it not good for this kind of big data analysis. So it's kind of a shame because we lost privacy for something that was promised and, and that just wasn't possible. And then the third element that was very important is once the data economy was half entrenched, the technology companies realized that that was their future. So they wanted to peddle narratives that convinced us that we didn't need privacy anymore. So famously, Mark Zuckerberg in 2010 uh, said that people had evolved the norms of privacy, that we, we thought about data in a different way and that people were happy to share their things. And there's a big irony in somebody saying this who has bought the four houses around his house to protect his privacy. But back then, a lot of people bought it. A lot of people thought, yeah, you know, maybe privacy was relevant in the past, but not anymore. And what we've seen recently is that privacy is more relevant than ever. That the same reasons we had for protecting privacy, we have today still and, and even more salient in many ways. So, you know, in the past, you, you protected your privacy not to get stolen. And today we're seeing identity theft really rise, um, especially as a result of the pandemic, when more people are using things online or, or, being, or spending time online. And so these three factors, first, using personal data as a tool to personalize ads, then 9-11 and governments having an interest in making a copy of that data and in that data getting collected. And then thirdly, the kind of narratives that tech companies have peddled. And one of the most important ones has been that privacy is obsolete. Before we move on to that, I want to kind of just focus in on 9-11. We're about to have the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Of course, that will be an important day here in New York City, where I live, um, and elsewhere in the country. But at the same time, Another event that occurred, another event that, that many describe as uh, terrorism, January 6th, the investigation in Congress and the select committee is just getting underway. And in fact, in the other tab I have open right now, I'm looking at uh, a host of subpoenas or, or letters of request that the committee has sent to social media companies requesting information that may be relevant to what happened that day. And I'm also struck by the fact that, you know, after January 6th, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, has testified that there was just simply so much information uh, on social media and kind of coming over the transom that they had a very difficult time uh, finding a signal in the noise. And we see the DHS actually uh, putting out a call for proposals to possibly buy other services that will help it sort through massive amounts of information on social media. There are literally lines in your book that are about this phenomenon. What do you make of what's going on in the United States, perhaps elsewhere today when it comes to social media and surveillance? Yes, that's very interesting. Um, one of the reasons why big data is not good at preventing terrorism is because terrorism is like trying to find a needle in a haystack and adding all the data you can possibly collect and saving it for as long as you can just means you're adding a whole lot of hay to that haystack and making it all the more difficult to find the needle. So this is one example in which there's so much information out there that it might be counterproductive. 
it's intuitive to think that the more data we have, the more we'll know and the more um, we can improve society and predict the future and prevent bad things from happening. But there's a lot of evidence that shows that often too much information is counterproductive and we just get lost in, in the noise, in correlations that turn out to be spurious, in pretty much chaos. And it would have been better to just collect the, the data that we need. In the case of January 6th, it's an interesting case because if you're somebody who's worried about democracy, um, that was a, a scary day and a scary moment. And people might think, well, see, you know, it's fantastic that we have this data and that they can find the people who acted in, in illegal ways. The problem with technology is that you shouldn't think of it as something that will always be used for good ends and in the best way possible, even if it sometimes is. Technology can be used in different ways and you have to consider the very likely fact that it will be used in the worst possible way because human beings are imperfect and there are a lot of interests and is chaotic and you can't control technology. Once you invent something, you can't uninvent it. So when we think about whether it's a good idea to collect so much data, um, we should try to think about the cases in which it goes terribly wrong, not the cases in which you think it may be justified. So talking about recent things, I mean, this is not about social media, but it's about collecting data. We're seeing now in Afghanistan that one of, one of the horrendous things that is happening is that there's a lot of data that might incriminate people. And I've seen a post from a teacher who's trying to delete or burn her students' records and women's records uh, because if the Taliban realized that you know, women were studying, they might uh, be in serious trouble. And if those records were digital, it would be almost impossible to delete them. You just can't burn them. Digital data, one of the qualities of digital data is that it gets copied in so many servers that it's very hard to, to delete. Another example is the US apparently left biometric data of uh, people who, who helped them, who helped Americans. And there's a, there's a big worry that the Taliban might get, on, might get that data. The, the UK embassy, turns out, it also left personal data behind. And so we can see how personal data is a huge danger and we should think about what can go wrong, not, what, not only what can go right. You also put that in the context of you know, what's happened here in the United States. You mentioned uh, Edward Snowden, um, but also multiple other aspects of what the state here has done to create a sort of surveillance uh, ecosystem. Are you monitoring also what's going on in China on a day-to-day -day basis? This may be something that you haven't seen yet. I just noticed today that part of the Chinese government has put out a new set of recommendations around data privacy. How did you kind of think about China in the context of these questions? China is a fascinating case, of course, because it's a case of a country that is probably the country that surveils the most around the world. And it's something that as liberal democracies, we, we don't want to go that way. And yet we are building many technologies that are going in that way, that we're not walking away from it, we're walking towards it. And that's something that really worries me. China is also very interesting because it has... Um, implemented a system of social credit in which, depending on what people do, they lose or win points. And those points are used to limit people's opportunities or to give them more opportunities. So say, say you get caught jaywalking, that loses you points, and that might be used 
to prohibit you from using airplanes, high-speed trains, from staying in exclusive hotels. Um, if you don't have enough points, you might be less visible on dating apps. Um, and if you have a lot of points, you might, for instance, not need to give a deposit when you rent a car. There are all kinds of perks. And what makes the system scary is that it's very totalitarian in the sense that something that you do in one aspect of your life can influence another. So say you listen to loud music at your home. If you live in the United States, you, you know, that might get your neighbors angry and they might even call the police and ask you to turn it down. But that's not going to have an impact on, on the loan that you're going to get or your visibility on a dating app or on a job that you're going to apply for. And in China, it does, which makes it really scary. Now, something really interesting is that up until now, one of the arguments of tech companies in, in the West for not being regulated was that they needed to be competitive with China. So the idea is that, you know, don't regulate tech companies because we need all that data to keep up with China. And if you regulate us, China is not going to regulate its tech companies and it's going to have more data and therefore it's going to develop AI faster. There are many reasons for why that's very questionable. But something fascinating now is that China has just passed one of the most strict laws of privacy around the world. And there's a lot of speculation of why, why do they do that? Their tech companies, uh, their stock dropped. So why would they do that? And one possible reason, among others, is because they realize that having so much personal data stored is a ticking bomb. And in particular, is a danger to national security. So their rivals will get to that data sooner or later, and they will use it against China. So one reason why they're regulating in favor of privacy is to protect themselves. And that gives a big motivation to the United States to come up with a federal privacy law, because it's, it's one of the few advanced countries that doesn't have one. And that's very worrisome. So you do get into this idea of privacy as power uh, in chapter three. You talk about hard power, soft power, this idea of privacy being collective. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the different forms of power you see connected to privacy? Up until now, we have been aware that data is important because it's valuable. People can sell it for money. But I argue that even more important than that is that data gives people and institutions power. So not only can they sell it and earn money, but they can also get all kinds of things in exchange for it. So for instance, if you have enough power, you can buy politicians and you can lobby the government. If you have enough power, you can not pay taxes and you have much more clout than just money. One of the insights of Bertrand Russell was that we should think about power as energy in that it transforms from one thing into another. So if you have enough political power, you can buy economic power. If you have enough, if enough economic power, you can get military power and so on. And one of the jobs of good regulation is to stop that from happening so that even if you have a lot of economic power, that, that doesn't necessarily get you political power. So at the moment with data, it's a kind of new power in a sense. It's always been there. There's always been a connection between knowledge and power. So the Fra Francis Bacon already argued that um, the more you know about somebody, the more you have power over them. And that's kind of an intuitive thought. And Michel Foucault argued that the more power you have, you, the more you get to, to decide what counts as knowledge about someone. So for instance, Google has a lot of power and that makes it the case that it decides how it classifies us. When Google tells the rest of advertisers and companies that you are such and such age, 
and such and such gender, and these are your interests, they get to decide how you are treated and how you are seen. And part of the power of data is related to the power to predict what's going to happen next, and in particular, the power to predict what we're going to do next and try to influence our behavior such that we act differently than, than we would have otherwise. And so even though this power has always existed, in the digital age, it becomes much more important because we have a lot more data than we used to have, and we have new methods to analyze that data that weren't there before. So it kind of crept up on us because we weren't used to data being this powerful. And instead of just thinking about it as, as money, thinking about it as power will lead us to be more mindful of the kind of asymmetries that we are seeing. How do we address those and how do we regulate them? One of the things that I think of us doing at Tech Policy Press is, is being part of a pro-democracy movement around the intersection of tech and democracy. You actually pause in the book and, and make a case for liberal democracy. Why did you think that that was important to do in this context? When I was writing the book, or maybe maybe a few months before, I had seen a few polls, uh, one by The Economist and, and, and a few others, that seemed to suggest that people weren't that enamored with, with democracy anymore, in, in particular in the United States, uh, but also elsewhere. There's a lot of people who think that democracy is not working, so maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea to have something else. And this worries me because I agree that many times democracy doesn't work, but the alternatives are so much worse. And what we have to do when democracy doesn't work is figure out what's going on and change it, as opposed to thinking, well, you know, maybe if we had a dictator, they would sort things out. Because history shows that more often than not, um, that leads to a lot of un unnecessary suffering and a lot of injustice. So I make a case for, for why liberal democracy is something important, not just any kind of democracy, but liberal democracy. And the idea is that liberal democracy um, wants to make people as free as possible, as long as their freedom doesn't harm others. And it also wants to put limits on what people can do such that nobody's rights get trampled, not even minorities. So one of the uh, worries about democracy is that the what uh, John Stuart Mill called the tyranny of the majority, which means that the majority, if, if they don't, if they dislike a minority can be just as as bad a tyrant as if you had one dictator. So liberal democracy tries to, to limit that power. And one of the authors that I cite that I think is very insightful is George Orwell. And George Orwell said, you know, I get it. Democracy sucks. It's slow. It's chaotic. If you get too many rich people, they're going to co-opt it. It's just really not ideal. But if you compare it to dictatorships, there's a huge difference. And what some of his detractors used to say, well, but there isn't, you know, in democracies, you see injustice and people who go to jail who shouldn't go to jail and people who make, who do crimes and, and they, they don't go to jail because they're rich and so on and so forth. And George Orwell said, yes, that's true. But the amount of injustice that you get is, a is, is, is very small in comparison to what you get in a dictatorship. And that matters. So what, what is a difference in uh, grade becomes a difference in quality. And most people in liberal democracies can go down to the street and protest and speak their minds and buy what they want and so on without fear of being repressed or of facing negative consequences. And that is what matters in a, in a, in a liberal democracy. And that's what we should be very worried about protecting. In chapter four, you get into 
questions around what exactly we should be doing as individuals uh, and as a movement to take on the question of privacy. Uh, there's a lot here. You, you want folks to step up and help stop personalized advertising, stop the trade in personal data. You have recommendations like implementing fiduciary duty around uh, data and data collection, improving cybersecurity standards, uh, a ban on surveillance equipment, some proactive things like funding privacy regulation and bodies that would look after privacy, getting involved in antitrust, doing more to protect our children with regard to privacy. Um, wh- what do you see as the kind of key things that listeners of, of Tech Policy Press should be doing? The key thing is to realize how important privacy is, and then everything falls from that. So do what you can, and you don't have to be perfect. Um, history shows that we only need 5 or 10% of people to make an effort for things to change quite radically. So we need regulation, and there's no way around it. Uh, this is a collective action problem, and collective action problems doesn't, don't go away through individuals. But individuals have a big role to play in making that happen. So if we have 5 to 10% of people who care about privacy and realize it and protect it, um, that can motivate regulation. And not only regulation, but also companies realizing that privacy can be a competitive advantage, that it can actually sell and that people care about it and that we are willing to pay for it. Because we realize that if you don't pay for it, you pay even more further down the line. So if you don't pay for privacy, okay, it might seem free right now, but five years down the line, you get your identity stolen and you lose money because somebody stole your credit card number. Or you ask for a, for a job and you get discriminated against because the personal data shows that maybe you have a disease or you're trying to pre- get pregnant or um, whatever else doesn't make you attractive to an employer and you don't get the, the job. So ultimately, it, it's much more expensive to not protect our privacy. So what we can do is First, understand that privacy is collective. So a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't care. I don't have nothing. I don't have anything to hide. I'm not a criminal. I'm not shy. And I have a permanent job. So, you know, I have no reason to protect my privacy. But actually, one of the narratives that the tech companies have sold us that is incorrect is that privacy is an individual preference and something very personal. But actually, there's this collective side that's just as important. So when I expose data about myself, I expose others. If I expose my location data, I'm exposing my neighbors and my coworkers. If I expose data by my psychology, I'm exposing people who share those traits. If I expose my genetic data, I'm exposing not only my parents and siblings and kids and so on, but also very distant kin who I'm never going to meet, but who can have very bad consequences from it. So if we think about privacy as collective, suddenly it gives us a reason to work as a team, to protect our privacy, not only for ourselves, but for our community, family, friends, but also our society. And we should try to to choose privacy-friendly options. So instead of using Google search, use DuckDuckGo. It's very good and, and it doesn't collect your data. Instead of using WhatsApp, use Signal. Instead of using something like Gmail, you can use ProtonMail. There are many alternatives out there and they're typically free and and work very well. Or if they're not free, they're not very expensive. Contact your political representatives, tell them that you care about privacy. There's not one thing that's going to solve it all. So it's just the accumulation of efforts that's going to make a difference. You have some specific recommendations for tech workers. And I don't know every person that will listen to this, but I do know that 
a lot of the folks that are in the tech policy press community either work in tech or around tech. What do you think they should be doing in particular? They have a, spe- a very special responsibility because they they make the magic happen. Without them, um, there wouldn't be any apps or websites or platforms and so on. So here at Oxford, I get to teach people who are studying sometimes mathematics or sometimes computer science. And I like to talk to my students about the inventors in the past who have regretted their, their inventions. So there are many examples, but one example is, for instance, uh, Kalashnikov, the person who, who developed the rifles, thought that their weapon was only going to be used in a just war. And of course, it turns out that it has been used in all kinds of wars and many times in very unfair and, and, and horrific ways. And at the end, near the end of his life, he wrote a letter to his priest asking if he was responsible for those deaths. And you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be the person who develops something that gets used to harm people because you're going to carry that for the rest of your life. And so in a perfect world, and I, I hope in, in the near future, we will have regulated technology in a way that not so much, not as um, heavy burden is on the shoulders of people who create the tech. So data analysts and programmers and computer scientists should be able to go to an ethics committee to get advice, to ask about a particular project, to solve problems. But at the moment, we don't have that. And so all the responsibility is on their shoulders. It's a tall order because the idea is when you design something, try to imagine how can it be misused. Just imagine like a dictator ending up with this tool and and how they they would use it. And by design, try to make it impossible to abuse. That's really, really hard. And And in some cases will be impossible. But designers have to keep in mind that they will lose control of their inventions. So now that we don't have regulation, uh, something that I advise is to try to seek out advice from ethics committees or, or, or people who work in ethics or people who work in, in tech and, and in, in tech and society. And in the US, I'm not that familiar with uh, what kinds of committees there are, but in the UK, for instance, Digital Catapult is an institution that helps startups take off. And one of the services they offer are ethics committees I think that is a really important thing also for people who want to invest in tech. If you want to invest in tech, first make sure that whatever project you're interested in has had some kind of ethical vetting because it takes a lot of imagination and experience to try to come up with what can go wrong. And as a designer, you might not be used to to thinking about that. And ideally, it shouldn't be all on, on one person's shoulder to carry that burden. You see two roads ahead, two possible worlds. Of course, there are probably more, but you you offer kind of two roads diverge in the yellow wood sort of <laughs> conclusion to the book. Can you describe what you see possible in the future and which direction you think we might be going? Basically, we have two options. Either we have a society in which we regulate for privacy and we get our act together and protect liberal democracy and make sure that our personal data won't be used against us. Or we get a society in which we have what we currently have, but more of surveillance, because that's the the tendency to to collect more and more data and to have more and more tools that are able to transform experience into data. And this is quite a scary scenario because it's, it's kind of China with more high tech. 
right? It's a scenario in which you can't do anything that doesn't get recorded and everything you do matters and you get judged for that. So it's a world in which, for example, I worry about children and, and what it means for them to grow up in an environment in which everything they do can be recorded and potentially used against them and potentially used to humiliate them or to discriminate against them in the future. And we really have to think carefully about what kind of society we want to live in in 10 years, 20 years time. Particularly now with the pandemic crisis, it's easy to give up civil liberties in an emergency without thinking of the kind of world we want to have once that emergency is, is over. On the one hand, I'm optimistic. I think that more and more people are aware that privacy is important, among other reasons, because they have had some bad experience with privacy online. In that sense, we are maturing as the digital age evolves. But at the same time, the tendency is still currently to collect more data and to have more surveillance and to be very uncritical about surveillance. We're getting used to cameras and microphones being on all the time, being everywhere. And that really worries me. So ultimately, I'm optimistic in the sense that I think this is so bad and it's so unsustainable that we are going to regulate it sooner or later. We're going to get on top of it, just like we regulated other, other industries like railroads and cars and drugs and food and whatever industry has come before. But the question is, are we going to regulate it before something really bad happens? Or are we going to wait for something like personal data being used for the purposes of genocide in the West? Is is that what it's going to take for us to wake up? And every alarm call that we get is more and more worrisome. So what what are we waiting for to to wake up? And that's my concern. So... One of the things, and you do deal with this in the book on some level, you deal with the potential pushback that someone might bring, which is, you know, don't we need all this data to solve our problems? And you go, I think, into a specific look at medical technology and medical information and the extent to which personal data may be valuable to solve uh, diseases or or medical problems. Um, But I might also throw in there climate in the big infrastructure bill that's, uh, you know, made its way in the United States, there is a lot of focus on digital solutions for climate change and what might be possible there. And lots of interest, obviously, in in data collection. Um, I don't know, how do you square those things? I mean, on some level, our capitalist economy seems to have mostly bet that its only hope is more tech and more information and more machine learning and more big data sets. So what do we do? The ideal answer is, is longer than I'm about, um, I, I can give right now. So I encourage people to read the book because there I have a, a more nuanced answer. But the short of it is with regards to medicine. Yes, of course, we need personal data for medicine. If you go to your doctor and you don't want to tell them what's wrong with you, they're not going to be able to help you. But that doesn't mean that we should sell that data. So what I'm arguing for is that we shouldn't personal data shouldn't be the kind of thing that you can buy or sell. Just as we don't allow votes to be bought or sold because it would totally deform democracy for the same reasons we shouldn't allow personal data to be bought or sold. Furthermore, we have to be critical in the sense that it's not automatic that the more data we have, the better medicine we will get. So one, one example is during the coronavirus pandemic, there have been many attempts to use AI to, to help fight the pandemic. And in a recent article in MIT Review, they wrote about two meta-analyses 
that have been published recently about all the AI tools that have been implemented in hospitals to fight COVID. And it turns out that out of the hundreds and hundreds of AI tools that have been developed, uh, maybe if I remember correctly, one or two are clinically viable, maybe. So, and, and these are tools that have been used on patients and that it, in some cases may have, have, may, may have harmed patients. So we need to be a lot, a lot smarter about AI and not just assume that because it's cutting edge tech, surely it's better. And because it's AI, surely it's better. That's, that's just not the case. So that's part of it. Another issue is whether AI is really going to need as much data as it needs now. So what we want from AI is for it to be authentically intelligent. And if you have had a conversation with your digital assistant recently, you will have noticed that they're not very bright. The difference between a digital assistant or an AI and, and a child is that you, can, you, you only have to tell a child something a few times and they get it. They remember it, they can generalize it, they can use that information in many different ways very flexibly, and they don't need millions of cases to, to do that. So there's, there's an argument to be made for why AI in the future, true, like really intelligent AI won't need the amounts of data that it, that it needs today. A third answer or a third part of the answer is that there's a lot of data that we can use that's not personal data. And I admit that it's very hard to distinguish what personal data is from what is, from what is not personal data, because what we thought was not personal data suddenly becomes personal data when it turns out that there's a new tool that can re-identify or use that data to identify people. But for the purposes of climate change, there, there will be a lot of data that will be beneficial that will not be personal data. Things like the quality of air and whether temperature is going up and how and you know how the, the glaciers are, are um, melting and all kinds of things that will not be personal data. The short of it is we can do everything we want to do without having the data economy that we currently have. There's no reason why we should be buying and selling personal data. What's next for you on the topic of privacy? Uh, where are you going to take your concern about this issue next? I want to focus more on, on how algorithms are using data and what we can do to preserve autonomy. So at the moment, there can be hundreds of algorithms making decision about you making decisions about you right now, whether you get a loan, whether you get a job, whether you get an apartment, how long you wait in line, what price you get for, for a particular product, and you have no idea. And that seems wrong to me. I also want to think about how do we regulate algorithms. At, at the moment, you can produce any kind of algorithm pretty much to do whatever you want and let it loose into the world without any kind of supervision whatsoever. And that seems absolutely crazy. Um, so one of the things I'm thinking about is how do we implement randomized control trials with algorithms, just like we do with medicines? We would never allow a medicine to go out into the market without being tested. And yet we do that with algorithms all the time. And, and algorithms can be just as harmful as any powerful drug. So I'm currently thinking more about that and, and, and veering in that, in that direction. So more about power than, than privacy. But maybe, maybe to end, I... A lot of people think that it's very radical to say that we should end the data economy. But really, if you come to think about it, first, in history, we have banned certain kinds of economic activity in the past because they're just too toxic for society. They're just too dangerous. But second, if you think about it, what seems to me like 
really extreme is to have a business model that depends on the systematic and mass violation of rights. That's what's crazy. It's not banning it, that's crazy. So I think we have gotten used to a very unfair situation and we have to reassess our society uh, with a view to protecting our democracy and the kind of, of life we want to lead and, and that we want our kids to be able to lead. The book is Privacy is Power, Why and How You Should Take Back Control of Your Data. Uh, Carissa, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.